you like me to tell you the little story of right hand, left hand? The story of good and evil. Rosa Parks was arrested, sparking the bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. Why don't you get out of Dodge while you're still alive? Ain't that a shame? We backed South Vietnam with money, military supplies, and advisors to train them in their use. You're tearing me apart! You are a blabbermouth! Disneyland, the world's most fabulous kingdom, will be unveiled before an invitational world premiere. Yes! The $64,000 question. So here's the $64,000 question for you, Cliff. How much did a ticket cost on the opening day of Disneyland in 1955? It's easy. A nickel. A nickel. Everything cost a nickel back then. <laughs> it seemed like that. And if you didn't have a nickel, old Walt would accept a dozen fresh <laughs> eggs in exchange for the ticket. I don't know about the eggs. Where did you get, where did you pull the egg thing out of? Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff. We're a couple of high school history teachers who discuss, debate, and deprecate each other's thoughts and ideas about U.S. history and popular culture. And in each episode, we aim to create a big-picture snapshot of one year in post-World War II America by using significant historical events to contextualize a handful of films, TV shows, shows and songs. We're stepping back to 1955 in this show, and if you're a frequent listener to Your View Mirror, you would know that the 1950s were not as cheery and prosperous as your high school history textbook made it out to be. The Cold War was raging, the nuclear arms race was accelerating, the civil rights movement was firing up, and youth culture was asserting itself as a force in American society. Our two movie selections definitely reflect a more cynical tone in America by the mid-1950s, when we'll be discussing the teenage drama Rebel Without a Cause, starring James Dean, and a lesser-known film noir classic, The Night of the Hunter. Television was the hot medium in 1955, and we'll be discussing three debuts that very much defined the early days of television. The Western series Gunsmoke, the game show The $64,000 Question, and the sitcom classic the Honeymooners. And for music, we'll hear songs from Perez Prado, Little Richard, Bo Diddley, and the white buck crooner himself, Pat Boone, who pretty much copied Little Richard's and Bo Diddley's sound, and in doing so, captured white American teenage ears. Let's first get to the biggest stories of 1955. In 1955, Cold War tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union continued to shape global geopolitics. The Warsaw Pact was created as a military alliance among the eight communist countries led by the Soviet Union in response to the formation of NATO by Western nations. This deepened the division between the Eastern Bloc and the Western Bloc, solidifying the ideological and military standoff. Additionally, the arms race escalated with both superpowers testing larger and larger nuclear weapons. Only one year after the landmark Supreme Court Brown versus Board of Ed ruling, the civil rights movement reached a pivotal moment with the Montgomery bus boycott. Triggered by the arrest of Rosa Parks, a black woman who refused to give up her bus seat to a white person, the boycott lasted for 381 days. Led by Martin Luther King Jr., the black community in Montgomery, Alabama, boycotted the city's public 
with buses, demanding an end to racial segregation in public transportation. The boycott ultimately led to a Supreme Court ruling declaring segregation on public buses unconstitutional, inspiring further efforts to dismantle racial segregation in the United States. 1955 marked the year the United States intervened in what would become one of the longest-running wars in U.S. history. Soon after France withdrew from their colonization of Vietnam, the U.S. provided military advisors, financial aid, and the commitment to build up the South Vietnamese military in an effort to quell growing communist threats in the region. This intervention foreshadowed the more extensive commitment that would later escalate into a full-scale war in the 1960s. The U.S. finally withdrew from Vietnam in 1975, and in the end, the U.S. lost over 58,000 soldiers. Vietnam lost over 2 million people. And Vietnam remains only one of five communist countries on Earth as of 2024. And on a much lighter note, Disneyland opened in 1955. Although not the first theme park created, Disneyland set a new standard for all theme parks that followed. Let's hear a brief clip from Walt Disney's commemoration that day. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. Since 1955, Disney has opened 11 additional theme parks, most notably in Orlando, Florida, as well as several international locations including China, Japan, France, and Hong Kong. Ken, you worked for Disney for a bit in the 90s. I'm sure you've been to one or two Disney parks. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, that was definitely a perk of the job back then. And having three young boys around that time, we took full advantage of Disneyland. I worked for Disney Online at the time, and we turned my golden retriever at the time, her name was Abby, we turned her into an online celebrity. And she and the whole family were invited to Disney World in Florida for the opening of Animal Kingdom. She was treated like canine royalty. And she actually was given her own ID badge. How about you, Cliff? I went to Disney World when I was about 10 years old. My mom and dad and brother drove down to Florida with our cousins, the Hermans, in a rented Winnebago. While we weren't exactly treated like royalty, I did catch the eye of Snow White during a parade in the Magic Kingdom. And she gifted me a big bunch of helium balloons. How special. She was quite the hottie, Ken. And I think she had a crush on me, but not Nothing ever came of it, alas. <laughs> hey, the number one box office film of 1955 was the Disney animated classic The Lady and the Tramp, a story about a pampered cocker spaniel who falls in love with a mutt. Kind of sounds like your marriage to Sonia, Cliff. <laughs> you ever see Lady and the Tramp? Of course I saw Lady and the Tramp. And I could say the same about your marriage to Stacy. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> You're the mutts, man. <laughs> How about you? Oh, I absolutely adored Lady and the Tramp. That was when Disney animation was artfully done by hand, frame by frame. Great story and just a great animated feature. And you know I love my feature animation. Yes, yes you do. But the two films we're going to discuss were definitely not syrupy, sweet, kitty fare, although both featured kids and young adults. Let's start with Rebel Without a Cause a classic 50s film which perfectly captured the sentiment of teenage youth culture in the early 50s. 
This was one of the first teenage movies before teenage movies were actually a thing. But Rebel Without a Cause was special, primarily because of James Dean, who would become an immortalized pop culture icon. The film was Warner Brothers' second biggest box office draw that year, and it was clear teenage coming-of-age movies were only going to get more popular. I was surprised how well this movie held up after almost 70 years. It's amazing to see that what kids wanted in the 50s is really not that much different than the 2020s. They just want to be heard and supported. Let's hear a clip from the film's official trailer. You know what kind of drunken brawls those parties turn into. It's no place for kids. A minute ago you said you didn't care if he drinks. He said a little drink. You're tearing me apart! You, you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! No, I don't want you to go to the police. There were other people. Why should you be the only one involved? But I am involved. We are all involved. Mom, a boy, a kid was killed tonight. Rebel Without a Cause was James Dean's second film. East of Eden had also come out in 1955, only seven months before Rebel Without a Cause. Sadly, Dean would only be in one more movie after Rebel, the epic drama Giant, which was released in 1956. Dean died in a car accident one month before Rebel was released. Dean remains the only actor to receive two Academy Award nominations posthumously. His death immortalized him as one of America's most treasured entertainment icons. And if you go to a 50s diner, you're going to see images of James Dean alongside Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley. Dean, Monroe, and Presley belong to a generation known as the Silent Generation, born between 1928 and 1945. Coming of age in the post-war era, silence were often characterized as trending towards conformity and traditionalism. However, that image would definitely change with the advent of rock and roll, leather jackets, and juvenile delinquency in the latter part of the 1950s. And Rebel Without a Cause is a perfect cultural artifact from that period. I love the start of this film when all three of those characters are in a police station, all for different reasons. All three teenagers are struggling to find themselves, but they can't seem to escape the yoke of parenting stress and anxiety, and it's clear the classic nuclear family is disintegrating. You gotta keep in mind that after World War II, which ended less than 10 years before Rebel, the 50s were very strictly rule-bound and heavily propagandized regarding the ideal family life, as well as what people felt post-war society should be like, which included, to no small extent, how young people should act. However, the silent generation was no longer staying silent, and juvenile delinquency by 1955 was becoming a national concern. A special subcommittee on juvenile delinquency was established in Congress to investigate the rising level of juvenile crime in the United States, with public attention focusing on allegations linking juvenile delinquency to the harmful effects of reading comic books and listening to rock and roll. That'll do it every time, Cliff. <laughs> rock and roll and comic books. It's what fucked me up, man. <laughs> The character of Jim Stark, played by Dean, is emblematic of the restless, rebellious youth that was associated with the rise of juvenile delinquency. Did you see any other themes in the movie you want to discuss? Yeah, I, I found that the most complex character in the film was Plato, uh, the character played by Sal Minio. The kid is definitely troubled. His father abandoned him and his mother left him in the care of a housekeeper after she took off with some dude to Hawaii. Plato's search 
for male role models is evident as he clings to Jim, reflecting his yearning for a sense of family and belonging. There's also a sense that he may be homosexual, and in fact, Salminio, in an interview years later, claimed, quote, he was, and he's referring to his character, he was, in a way, the first gay teenager in films. You watch it now, you know he had the hots for James Dean. Everyone knows about Jimmy's bisexuality, so it's like he had the hots for Natalie Wood and me. Ergo, I had to be bumped off out of the way. Unquote. Sorry to spoil the ending here, but Plato was in fact killed off by the end of the film, and it is interesting that the only character with homosexual tendencies does in fact get killed off. Did you read anything into that, Cliff? I don't think anybody back then watching this film would have picked up on Plato's homosexual tendencies. Okay. And I would argue, even though Sal Minio, who played the character, says otherwise, yeah. I would argue that they didn't pick up on them because they just weren't there. Plato is looking for a father figure and a friend, not a lover. So I don't find the fact that he gets killed off at the end interesting for the reason you suggest. The other film from 1955, which also had a more jaded tone, was the film noir thriller The Night of the Hunter, starring Robert Mitchum as a serial killer preacher who charms an unsuspecting widow in order to get his hands on $10,000 in stolen bank money hidden by her dead husband. The first time I saw this several years back, Cliff, I was just lukewarm on it. But after seeing it a second time for this podcast and learning more about the background of the film, I so appreciated it more. How about you, Cliff? I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. Yeah, but you're not a big old guy, old I, that movie black guy. Black and white throws me off. I've watched more black and white movies because of this podcast <laughs> than any time before in oh, my life. I love my black and white movies. You know, but I don't think I'm going to be watching it again anytime soon. Yeah. But I did find Robert Mitchum's character, uh, Preacher Powell, rather intriguing. Oh, fascinating, dude. The film also has a fascinating story itself. It was directed by Charles Lawton, who was one of the most revered British character actors around that time, with films like The Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Private Life of Henry VIII, for which he won an Academy Award for Best Actor. This was the only film Lawton ever directed, which is a shame because it clearly demonstrated Lawton's creative vision. However, the film fared so poorly at the box office, he took it personally and never directed another film after that. The story is loosely based on the true story of Harry Powers, who was hung in 1932 for the murder of two widows and three children in Clarksburg, West Virginia. The film has a distinctive lyrical and expressionistic style, borrowing techniques from the silent film era, which set it apart from other Hollywood films of the 1940s and 50s. The film has since become somewhat of a cult favorite and has been acknowledged by such directors as Martin Scorsese, the Coen brothers, and Spike Lee as inspirational in their careers. Let's hear a short clip from the film's original trailer. The night before your father died, he told me what he did with that money. He said, you tell my little girl, Pearl, that there's to be no secrets between her and you. The children know where it's hid. John knows. Where's the money hid? I don't know nothing. You think you can make me tell, but I won't! I won't! I won't! Please. Feel myself getting awful mad. This film didn't do well at the box office, and it's not hard to see why, as it is a dark, dark film. Both literally and figuratively. <laughs> no, really, yeah. it is. It's mostly black 
and a little white yeah. film. Yeah. It plays out as a kind of nightmarish mother goose story. Absolutely. Even though this movie was set during the Depression of the 1930s, there was a general tone in it that very much captured the doom and gloom of the 1950s. There's a prevalent atmosphere of paranoia and mistrust that characterized the McCarthy era and the Red Scare of the 1950s. McCarthyism was derived from Senator Joseph McCarthy, who played a prominent role in fueling the Cold War hysteria. He led the charge of intense anti-communist fervor and the aggressive pursuit of individuals suspected of being affiliated with or sympathetic to communist ideologies. It was a period of American history that very much mirrors the polarized world of American politics today. You're either with us or against us. In the film, the lurking presence of Preacher Powell with the words love and hate tattooed on his knuckles is a symbolic representation of the dualistic nature of society at that time. Just as in Rebel Without a Cause, the depiction of the nuclear family was very much at odds with the societal norms of the early 50s. The nuclear family was a social concept created out of the Cold War arms race conflict. The term nuclear family refers to a family unit consisting of two parents, a mother and a father, and their children living together in a single household. This This ideal was deeply embedded in the cultural norms of the time, and it reflected a set of values that were considered typical and desirable. In Night of the Hunter, the family structure is upended right at the start of the film when a father is caught stealing money from a bank and murdering someone at the scene. Just before he's caught, he reveals the whereabouts of the missing money to his son. While in a jail cell with the preacher, awaiting his death by hanging, he reveals the mystery of the missing money, which triggers the preacher to seek out the missing money by swindling the widow, her two young children, and the entire community in which they live. He ends up murdering the mother, leaving the children wandering aimlessly until they are taken in by a foster grandmotherly type lady, played by the famous silent film star Lillian Gish. Cliff, any other things about this film that struck you that you think worth discussing? Yeah, there is. As I said earlier, Preacher Powell, Robert Mitchum's character, really intrigued me. Though sinister as fuck, he is a deeply principled man, guided by his warped relationship with his Christian Lord and Savior, which allows him to manipulate religious rhetoric for personal gain. It's really twisted. He reminds me of Anton Chigurh, the villain in the Coen Brothers' film No Country for Old Men, which we covered in our 2000 episode. Chigurh is also very principled and dangerous, but his principles are beyond our comprehension. So, too, are the principles of Preacher Pow. It should come as no surprise that our old friends, the Catholic Legion of Decency. Oh, there they are again. We've referenced the Catholic League at least a half a dozen times. And on it's this been a while since yeah. we've referenced them. They gave the film a B because it degraded marriage, and the Protestant Motion Picture Council rated it objectionable, saying that any religious person would be offended by it. The film was also banned in Memphis, Tennessee. As noted earlier, The Night of the Hunter was a box office failure, but its popularity grew as a new generation were exposed to the film when it played on television, and it has since gained a cult-like reverence among many well-known filmmakers. Spike Lee even included an almost verbatim copy of Preacher Powell's Love and Hate speech in his film, Do the Right Thing, which we covered in our 1989 show. This is absolutely one of the best films of the 1950s, and proof positive that you need to see a film 
multiple times to better appreciate its brilliance. By the start of 1955, television ownership was accelerating, with approximately 64% of American homes having a television set. This was a substantial increase from previous years, with television becoming an increasing form of entertainment and information dissemination. Keep in mind, on average, a basic 21-inch black-and-white television set cost about 250 bucks. That's about $2,500 in 2024 money value. So clearly, televisions were purchased by more middle to higher class families. The most popular TV shows at the time were family-oriented sitcoms like I Love Lucy, which was the number one show that year, Father Knows Best, and The Danny Thomas Show all of which we've covered on previous episodes. However, westerns and game shows were growing in popularity, and there were two shows that debuted in 1955 which propelled that trend, Gunsmoke and the $64,000 Question. And we'll get to those, but let's first discuss one of the most iconic sitcoms in television history, The Honeymooners, starring Jackie Gleason. Jackie Gleason, who I never found to be very funny in the other things I've seen him in, he truly sparkled in this sitcom. His facial expressions alone were the work of a comic genius. How about you, Ken? Yeah, I can't say the same, Cliff, unfortunately. I was not a big Honeymooners fan. I found Jackie Cleason's character to be just way too loud, way too obnoxious, and just way too often mean-spirited, especially against his wife, who he always seemed to be threatening with a bang zoom <laughs> to the moon. I mean, the, the threats of physical violence on this show were unsettling. However... After watching a bunch of episodes for this podcast, what I better appreciated about the show was its depiction of lower middle class urban America at that time. Ralph Cramden, played by Gleason, was a simple city bus driver. His best friend, Ed Norton, played by Art Carney, was an underground engineer, as he called it, but he really worked in the New York City sewers. Both of their wives didn't work, which always surprised me because neither couples had kids, but once again, these were the societal norms of the 1950s, and I was further surprised to discover that roughly 70% of American wives did not have a job outside of their homes. The majority of sitcoms by 1955 featured idealized depictions of American family life. Even though I Love Lucy featured a mixed marriage between a wacky red-haired white lady and a Cuban nightclub star, you never got the sense they were struggling for money. But the Honeymooners definitely took it down a couple of class levels. Ralph and Ed always seemed to be coming up with some get-rich scheme that always backfired, leaving them stuck in their lower middle-class rut. Let's listen to a short clip from the very first episode from the first season, which underscores the economic plight of the Cramdens. In this clip, Ralph's wife, Alice, is berating Ralph for being too cheap about getting a new television set. Ralph, why can't we have a television set? The Nordens are on their second one. We haven't even had our first one yet. Why do you always have to be so cheap? Is that why you think I won't get your set because I'm cheap? Well, that shows how much you know. All right, what is the reason? Do you want to know the reason? I'm waiting for 3D television. That's the reason. Let's face it, Ralph. You're just too cheap to get me a set. Ed Norton makes the same money you do, and you know what they have? They got a washing machine. They got a vacuum cleaner. They got a television set. They even got an electric stove. Even an electric stove? It's pretty clear electronic consumer goods like vacuum cleaners, electric stoves, and television sets distinguished social class in 1955, and the Cramdens were without all of those things. Remember... 
Television sets were pretty expensive in 1955, so I'm sure this is an argument you would have heard in many American households at that time. The Honeymooners actually existed for several years before its official series premiere in 1955. In 1950, Jackie Gleason became the host of a variety show called Cavalcade of Stars, which aired on the struggling Dumont Television Network. After the first year, he and his writers developed a sketch that drew upon familiar domestic situations for its material. Gleason wanted a realistic portrayal of poor husband and wife living in Brooklyn, his home borough. In 1952, CBS lured Gleason away and gave him his own show, appropriately called The Jackie Gleason Show. They proved to be so popular, CBS created The Honeymooners, and the show became a rating success. However, after only one season and 39 half-hour episodes, the show ended. However, once again, it was syndication that resurrected the show to become one of the most revered sitcoms in television history. The Honeymooners served as the inspiration for many family-based sitcoms. Sitcoms, most notably The Flintstones, which we covered in our 1960s show. Other shows with a clear Honeymooners influence include Married with Children, The Simpsons, and King of Queens. But what about your thoughts on Ralph's seeming empty threats of domestic violence against his wife, Alice? I never really thought much about them, to tell you the truth. And Alice never cowered to Ralph's explosions of hot air. Not once. No, she didn't back down. And in fact, there have been a couple episodes I watched where she actually advocated for not just herself, but for all women. And Alice, she never believed her husband would strike. And by extension, the audience didn't yeah, either. Yeah, I know. I, maybe I'm getting too caught up with this sort of political correctness No, no, of I the think show. it's a good point. Yeah. And then... Oh, Always, once he went and made a fool of himself, he'd come crawling back and admit she was right all along. One of the most successful game shows of all time launched in 1955. However, this one later became deeply entrenched in controversy. The $64,000 question was a trivia-based game show in which contestants earned money, which doubled as the questions became increasingly difficult. The final question had a top prize of $64,000, and that's... That's about equivalent to $735,000 in 2023 money value. Almost immediately, the $64,000 question beat every other program on Tuesday nights in ratings. And supposedly, the U.S. president at the time, Dwight D. Eisenhower, insisted on not being disturbed while the show was on. And remarkably, the nation's crime rate, movie theater, and restaurant patronage dropped dramatically when the show aired. Let's listen to a short clip from the show's first season in which Dr. Joyce Brothers was a contestant. And for those of you too young to know who Brothers was, she parlayed her fame from winning the show's top prize into a long-lasting career as a television psychologist, advice columnist, and writer. In this clip, she banters with the show's host, Hal March. Are you all set to practice your psychology on me again? Oh, I wish I could, but I have enough trouble just practicing it on myself. That's something we've never explored on this program. And being a psychologist, you might be able to give me the answer. Which suffers the greatest anxieties, the contestants or me? Oh, the contestants, definitely. For a contestant, it's a, well, it's a new and it's a terrifying experience. Well, what exactly are you afraid of? Me, the people out there, the microphone? None of those things. I'm afraid of the unknown. What, what are they, what's the unknown? The unknown are the questions you're going to ask me. <laughs> By the way, Dr. Brothers won the $64,000 top prize by answering questions about boxing, of all things. I, and and, and, and minutiae. Oh my god, these questions were incredible. I mean, I watched an episode that had questions about American history. Yeah. 
holy hell, there's four separate questions with sub-questions and yeah. no really difficult questions. Yeah. But it was the show's involvement in the game show scandals of the late 1950s for which it would forever be associated with and, for a while at least, spell the end of trivia-based TV game shows. The scandal started with the then-popular game show 21. In 1956, it was discovered that the show's producers were feeding contestants answers to questions in order to heighten the drama and boost ratings. And by the way, that story uh, based on the 21 scandal was a really good movie. Uh, it was called Quiz Show, starring Ralph Fiennes and directed by Robert Redford. In 1958, a contestant on the $64,000 question came forward to say he had been given answers to questions. No wonder they were so freaking hard. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Although no person or institution received serious legal consequences, the quiz show industry underwent significant reforms. The FCC established stricter regulations, and networks implemented measures to prevent cheating and manipulation in game shows. The scandals had a lasting impact on the television industry, contributing to increased skepticism among viewers and prompting the implementation of more rigorous oversight and ethical standards by television networks. But even more interestingly, the quiz show scandals of the late 50s resulted in a shift in the balance of power between networks and sponsors. Up to this point in television distribution, sponsors were more or less the pocketbook that got shows made. However, the networks used the scandals to justify taking control of their programs away from sponsors, thereby eliminating any potential future manipulation in primetime broadcasting, and thereby giving the networks full autonomy over program content. The disappearance of TV quiz shows also gave rise to television's next big phenomenon, Western. One of the most successful TV westerns and one of the longest-running primetime shows of all time was Gunsmoke, which premiered in 1955. The series centered on Dodge City, Kansas in the 1870s during the settlement of the American West. The central character is lawman Marshall Matt Dillon, played by James Arness. Like many early TV series, Gunsmoke first started out as a radio series, which premiered in 1952 and ran to 1961. Gunsmoke almost immediately became a ratings hit and sparked a flurry of TV westerns afterwards, including Wagon Train, Rawhide, and Bonanza, all of which stayed popular until the late 1960s. Gunsmoke was different. It lasted 20 years. 20 years. 635 episodes, making it the longest-running primetime live-action television series until Law & Order Special Victims Unit, which is still on the air in its 25th season. It was also the top-rated show from 1957 to 1961 and maintained high ratings throughout its run. We'll get into why Gunsmoke was so popular and its impact on the Western genre right after we hear the following clip from the first season featuring Hollywood's best-known cowboy at the time, John Wayne. My name's Wayne. I've been kicking around Hollywood a long time. I've made a lot of pictures out here, and some of them have been Westerns. And that's what I'm here to tell you about tonight, a Western. A new television show called Gunsmoke. No, I'm not in it. I wish I were, though, because I think it's the best thing of its kind that's come along. It's honest, it's adult, it's realistic. When I first heard about the show Gunsmoke, I knew there was only one man to play in it. James Arness. You know, apparently John Wayne did want to be a part of Gunsmoke, but his Hollywood contractual obligations prevented him from joining the cast. However, Wayne was the one who actually recommended James Arness, who ended up starring in 
every single episode of the series 625 show run. And you can see why, because James Arness is very much a classic Wayne-influenced Western hero. Gunsmoke depicted the characters' lives as they faced off against a variety of dangerous outlaws. It also tackled issues such as racism, sexism, war, and violence. Cliff, what's your theory on why Westerns, and specifically Gunsmoke, proved to be so popular during the 1950s and 60s, and why Westerns would eventually fade away? The frontier narrative, often depicting the struggles of pioneers and the clash between civilization and the wilderness, resonated with audience. As the nation grappled with the aftermath of World War II and the Cold War, there was a nostalgic longing for a simpler, idealized past, and Westerns provided a romanticized version of American history. TV Westerns offered clear moral and ethical values at a time when societal norms were undergoing significant changes. The black and white morality portrayed in these shows with clear distinctions between good and evil provided a sense of comfort and stability for viewers. Characters like the Lone Ranger or Marshal Matt Dillon and Gunsmoke were often portrayed as virtuous heroes upholding justice, reinforcing traditional values, and a sense of moral order during a period of social upheaval. The 1950s saw a significant emphasis on traditional family values and the idolized image of the nuclear family. Westerns often portrayed themes of family, community, and resilience, which aligned with the societal concerns of the time. You also asked about why we Westerns kind of then disappeared. Yeah. I mean, look what happened in the late 1960s, the 1970s. People no longer saw Westerns as an escape from that? Right. I think so. Yeah. You know, because also we started seeing the spaghetti Westerns and people resonated more with this kind of... That's correct. You which know, we just covered. This kind of counterculture stuff. Right. Right. The Westerns were all like that the squares watched. Yeah. You start having sci-fi, uh, like Star Trek, uh, which we covered in our 1966 show. Yeah. You had freaking superheroes, yeah. Batman, which we also covered in 66. You just had a much more like creativity happening, so people started coming up with different kinds of shows. Yeah. At the start of 1955, the music industry was undergoing significant transformations, setting the stage for the dynamic 1960s decade that would follow. One year earlier, in 1954, Chuck Berry's Maybelline, Elvis Presley's That's Alright Mama, and Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock were among the pioneering rock and roll hits that brought this new, rebellious, and energetic sound to the forefront of popular music. The music industry at the start of 1955 reflected a vibrant mix of genres with rock and roll, rhythm and blues, and traditional pop coexisting and influencing each other as the industry adapted to the changing tastes of a new generation. This first song was the number one song for all of 1955 and was evidence of this confluence of genres. Yeah, it's a bizarre song. The song is Cherry Pink and Apple Blossom White by the Cuban band leader Perez Prado. And to me, it's evidence of Ricky Ricardo's Cuban influence on American pop culture around that time. Ricky Ricardo, of course, was the character played by Desi Arnaz on I Love Lucy. On the show and in real life, Arnez was a successful nightclub performer with a big orchestra. And you got to remember, Cuba was a very popular vacation destination for Americans until the country became communist in 1959. And travel then became heavily restricted. But Cuba's influence on American pop culture was evident in artists like Benny Moore, Celia Cruz, Desi Arnaz, and Perez Prado. Prado was known as the King of the Mambo, and his hit, Mambo No. 5, reached number 10 on the Billboard charts 
1950 and ignited a mambo surge across the globe. This song was prominently featured in the 1955 Hollywood film Underwater with Jane Russell. And if you ever pull up a clip, a YouTube clip of Jane Russell dancing to this song. Yeah, I'm going to like it. Very sexy. I'm going to like Jane it. Jane Russell was a... She was a Hollywood hottie back then. Isn't Mambo number five that it was a little resurre- bit of... Yeah. Da, da, ba, ba, ba. That's right. I forget the name of the artist. He resurrected that uh, in the... Vega. Uh, Something the Vega. La- yeah. It hit number one again, oh, I think, oh, back in the late this, 90s. That song. Okay. Yeah. Cliff, what are your thoughts about the song Cherry Pink and Apple Blossom White? And what's your theory on why this song became so popular in the U.S. in 1955? This song blows big chunk <laughs> I can imagine if I was Ralph Cramden, that hearing this song would get me so damn angry, I would just blow my top. And my theory on why this song was so popular in the U.S. in 1955 is this. People just didn't have much taste back then. And I think this song also represents a generational shift. I, I, From this point forward, what you're going to see are more rock and roll songs from 1956 onward mm-hmm. become more popular among interracial and interethnic audiences. I am so excited to talk about this next artist who I believe never received the full recognition he so deserves in the creation of rock and roll. Bo Diddley was an American guitarist and singer who played a key role in the transition from blues to rock and roll. Ask any classic rock star from the 1960s who was one of the biggest influences in their musical careers and chances are Bo Diddley's name is going to come up multiple times. Artists like Buddy Holly, Elvis Presley, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, The Animals, and The Clash have all publicly acknowledged the influence of Diddley's music in their own music. Diddley released three songs in 1955, which integrated his signature shuffle beat and established him as a rock and roll pioneer. But it was his self-titled song, Bo Diddley, that became his bestseller. Diddley was also a guitar innovator, including the use of tremolo and reverb effects to enhance the sound of his distinctive rectangular-shaped guitars. Diddley did something that was completely unheard of at the time. He used his guitar as a percussion instrument, not as melody or color like Chuck Berry or most guitarists at that time, but as something that was an extension of what drums would be doing. He took two cultures that existed in separate forms country and western and the kind of blues that used to be known as race music and put them together perfectly his beat was a jungle beat and more importantly it got white and black kids out on the dance floor here's a short list of several songs that integrated the classic diddly beat buddy holly's 1956 hit not fade away i'm gonna tell you how it's gonna be the beatles 1963 song I want to be your man. From 1975, Bruce Springsteen's She's the One. And you can even hear it in George Michael's 1987 song, Faith. You made me cry. We covered Fats Domino in our 1950 show when we discussed Domino's very first single, The Fat Man, which can certainly take claim to be one of the very first rock and roll songs. But The Fat Man was only a hit on the rhythm and blues charts, which essentially monitored the sales of black artists to overwhelmingly black audiences. Black artists rarely made much of an impression on the white pop charts. 
Domino continued to record and tour for the next several years, gaining recognition, fame, and money. But it wouldn't be until the release of this 1955 single, Ain't That a Shame, which would become his breakthrough hit, reaching number 10 on the Billboard Top 100. What was unique about Domino at the time was his boogie-woogie piano playing drove most of his songs, and his unique ability to combine various music styles like R&B, jazz, and blues distinguished Domino's sound. By the end of the 1950s, Domino was the most commercially successful black pop star of his day. Here's a great story about how much Fats Domino was revered by Elvis Presley. After one of Elvis's concerts in 1969, a journalist referred to Presley by his nickname, The King. And Presley swiftly gestured to Domino, who happened to be in the room watching on. Presley said, no, that's the real king of rock and roll. Let's face it, I can't sing like Fats Domino can. I know that. That's very humbling from Elvis Presley. Sure. Ain't That a Shame was covered and released by the white crooner, Pat Boone, the same year, and Boone's version went to number one, which pushed Domino's original to number 10 on the pop charts. And we'll get to Pat Boone right after we learn about another black artist who not only released a song that would define rock and roll, but once again, Pat Boone covered that song and achieved more success than the original. The song is Tutti Fruity by Little Richard. We previously covered another Little Richard song, Long Tall Sally, in our 1956 show, but the release of Tutti Fruity in 1955 was the song that not only broke Little Richard to a mass audience, it was the song and its creator that defined the rock and roll spirit. Little Richard is considered by most historians and musicians, including Richard himself, a founding father of rock and roll. His pompadour hairstyle, fervent shrieks, flamboyant garb, and joyful gender-bending persona embodied the spirit and sound of early rock and roll in a way that no other artist did at that time, influencing countless artists that heard and saw him perform. You know, originally, the lyrics of Tutti Frutti celebrated the female backside, Cliff. Is that so? Yeah, Tutti Frutti, good booty was the original <laughs> lyrics. Oh, I like that. And supposedly, lyrics later in the song got even more graphic and were definitely not airwave appropriate for 1955, but Richard and a fellow songwriter reworked the lyrics to a more PG rating. Tutti Frutti was a major shift in America's musical landscape, blending together elements of R&B, blues, boogie-woogie, gospel. The song was a major breakthrough into a brave, scary, and saucy new world called rock and roll. The song peaked at number two on the R&B charts in early 1956, but it didn't dent the Billboard Top 100. However, just like Fats Domino, Ain't That a Shame, Pat Boone's cover of Tutti Frutti reached number 12 on the Billboard 100 in 1956. Supposedly, Richard was so miffed by Boone's success, he decided to write a song so up-tempo and lyrics so fast and indiscernible, Boone would never be able to handle it. And believe it or not, still working as a dishwasher in early 1956, Little Richard wrote and released Long Tall Sally. For Little Richard to accomplish what he did in the mid-50s and based on his androgynous, flamboyant appearance and wild black man personality, he was truly one of a kind and a rock and roll revolutionary. You may 
So we come to the white buck crooner himself, Pat Boone, who we're not going to dissect as deeply as the previous three artists that we just covered. But more importantly, I want to discuss with you the idea of cultural appropriation, which Boone has often been criticized about. Let's first give a very quick overview of Boone himself. He started his music career in 1953 with little success, but it was the release of his cover of Fats Domino, Ain't That a Shame?, which set the course for Boone's early career success. Over the next couple of years, Boone recorded a variety of cover songs by black artists, including, of course, Little Richard, but also Ivory Joe Hunter and the Flamingos. During the late 1950s, he made regular television appearances on variety shows, and he cultivated a very safe, very wholesome, advertiser-friendly image that won him a long-term product endorsement contract from General Motors, which lasted well into the late 1960s. He has sold more than 45 million records, he's had 38 top 40 hits, and he's appeared in more than 12 Hollywood films. But it begs the issue, Cliff, which I want you and I to get into right now, was Pat Boone, a cultural appropriator that exploited the unique style and sounds of black artists, or was he simply in the right, or should I say white place, at the white time? <laughs> oh, I saw what you did there. Uh, Ken, I pretty much detest Pat Boone. As any true rocker does. I have always despised the man. I mean, let's not forget, this is 1955. Brown versus Board of Ed just happened in 1954. You're going to see the United States cultural society change as a result of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. You're going to begin to see a greater acceptance and tolerance of black culture. And I, there are many that argue that Pat Boone has done more for introducing black music to white ears. As far as I'm concerned, Pat Boone was a cultural appropriator. And he exploited black artists for his own gain. Yeah. Instead of honoring them like Elvis Presley and so many other great white rock and rollers did over the years. Yeah. Basically, he was just emulating them. Yeah. Right? He was trying to he was trying to do what they did. Right. But he could only do it in a whitey McWhite fashion. Yeah. Here's a quote by Boone that I want your reaction okay. to. Quote, I like to say I was the midwife at the birth of rock and roll. What you talking about, Pat Boone? <laughs> I mean, that's the fucking craziest fucking statement I ever heard. That, that, that is like an ego that should be... This is why I fucking hate the guy. Yeah. Hey, it's time to reveal our favorite media release from 1955. My favorite was definitely Rebel Without a Cause. However, there was another movie from 1955 that I actually thought about including in the list of movies that we were going to talk about because I really do think it was one of the more provocative films from that year, but I believe it also is one of the more underappreciated films of the 50s. And that's The Man with the Golden Arm, directed by Otto Preminger. I've always wanted to see that, but oh. I, haven't, I haven't got around to it. The film follows the life of Frankie, played by Frank Sinatra, a former heroin addict who has recently completed a stint in prison for his drug-related activities. Frankie returns to his old neighborhood in the Chicago's north side, determined to start a new life, free from the clutches of addiction. However, he quickly finds himself pulled back into the world of drugs. I was amazed how good this movie was after almost 70 years. The Man with the Golden Arm was groundbreaking for 1955, addressing the topic of drug addiction in a frank and realistic manner. Frank Sinatra's performance was exceptional, and it earned him legitimate critical acclaim. This is one of the better early Hollywood movies about substance abuse, 
and it deserves to be seen by everyone hearing this podcast. How about you, Cliff? I struggled to come up with a pick for 1955. Yeah, I know. You had said that once before. Until I remembered what your friend Paul did when he guest hosted our 1956 episode. That's right. He came up with a very unique personal selection. Right. He went with a car, the Thunderbird Coupe. Me? I'm choosing a fast food restaurant. What? Let me rephrase that. I'm choosing the fast food restaurant, not only of America, but of the freaking known world. Mickey D's, We're baby. We're talking about Mickey D's. <laughs> the clown. Right. On yeah. April 15th, 1955, Ray Kroc opened what he and his company would go on to credit as McDonald's number one in Des Plaines, Illinois. Today, there are over 40 thousand mcdonald's in over 100 nations well that does it for the show if anyone's interested to learn more about the stuff featured in the episode the films music and tv discussed please visit our website kenandcliff.com there you will find links to additional readings spotify song lists letterbox film lists and an opportunity to contact us about what you like and don't like Please listen next week as we step back to rediscover the pop culture glory of 1975. I'm going to be joined by a very, very special guest host, my wife of 34 years, Stacy. We'll discuss three classic 70s films, the bank heist drama, Dog Day Afternoon, the feminist horror film, The Stepford Wives, and the blockbuster shark movie, Jaws. For TV debuts, we'll discuss the sitcom spinoff, The Jeffersons, and the comedy sketch classic, Saturday Night Live. And for music, we'll hear songs from Bruce Springsteen, The Captain and Tennille, Queen, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, and Fleetwood Mac. Please share Year View Mirror with Ken and Cliff with your friends and family. That's freaking great. Calm down. Great white, whatever his name was. Calm down, Cliff. His name was Pat Boone. But hey, if you're a McDonald's fan, God bless the USA. Yeah. You can always find us on KenandCliff.com and drop us a message about what you like and don't like. Join us next time on Year View Mirror with Ken and Cliff.